This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. D, I've got my Reese's Pieces, and I've got a massive flamethrower. I'm ready to go on this episode. That is great. I've got my... Holy cow. Uh, okay, I just saw some, like, glint in your eye. It was a <laughs> reddish kind of glint. Um, I'm going to need you to donate me some blood here real quick. I just got <laughs> to do a little checking here, all right? Oh, it's all about the eyes. We're going to talk about the eyes. We are diving into June of 1982. This is a massive undertaking. We got three movies we're going to be talking about. Let's be clear about this. We do not just have three movies. We have three of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time, and they were all released within a week of each other. It's incredible. Like, E.T. came out a week later, Blade Runner and The Thing came out on the same day. So in a span of eight days... You have three of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time, 1982, 40 years ago this month. Before we dive in, okay. just, let's do a quick shout out for a couple of the folks who have left us an awesome review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey guys, if you're out there, if you're listening, we would love it if you visited our Patreon page and could do a monthly subscription. That'd be great. If that is out of your price range or interest right now, hit us up and leave us a review or uh, some stars on your podcast app and that helps us tremendously it gets us in front of other people we always have some sort of contest going on as far as the reviews are concerned if you get picked out of the people who give the reviews then we send you a cup there are a couple of awesome reviews that we've gotten just in the last few days and i don't know who these people are we we have awesome reviews that even if they won we couldn't tell who to send the cup to so let me just say a couple of them real quick all right so the first one i've got is from the Diz Kids. I don't know who the Diz Kids are. We probably know this person's name, but all we've got on the review is the Diz Kids. So if you are the Diz Kids, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Facebook, and let us know who you are. But the name of their review was Writing Checks the Podcast Can't Cash. The podcast is like a warm hug of nostalgia every week, 80s and 90s movies, music, and pop culture. If it's time to schedule your first colonoscopy... (laughs) You'll love this podcast. I especially recommend the episodes where they go track by track on Pearl Jam and Nirvana. High quality, well-researched stuff. Thank you, the Diz Kids. That is fantastic. Please hit us up on social media and let us know who you are. We also have another one from somebody known as RealKD2020. Again, I don't know who this is, but I think this is maybe the third awesome review that they've sent referencing one of our episodes. And we just got to say, Real KD 2020, hit us up. Tell us who you are. Real KD 2020, thank you so much. You're awesome. We appreciate you. Here's what Real KD 2020 says Good podcast. I look forward to seeing the movie. Prayers for Caleb's head and Jason's stones. Thank you very much. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Thank you, Real KD 2020. We appreciate you. For everybody who's paying attention, Caleb is doing much better every day. He actually went to his last day of school so he could see all of his friends. So he's doing much, much better. And are all the stones gone? Uh, stones have cleared, I think. So <laughs> all right. congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and then we got one on that same day from CFHBCGNVD. I don't even know how you pronounce that. There's not even any vowels. That's catchy right there. Right. So the best Gen X nostalgia pod, hands down the best 
best 80s, 90s podcast out there. Fun and incredibly well-researched conversations about movies and music, including tons of great show pitting two classics against each other. If you're a Gen Xer or live that era, this is a must-listen. Thank you, CFHBCGNVD, whoever you are. Hit us up and let us know Man, that what was... your real name is. <laughs> Those are three awesome reviews. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to do that. If you like us and you're listening out there, please give us a five-star review, and maybe you'll get a cup out of it. Yeah. Jason, we have a new executive producer for this episode. Yeah, this is our good friend Sissy Johnson. Uh, She's communicated with us on Twitter before, I think, right? Yeah, I think she found us, I think maybe through Duran Duran episodes. Awesome. Sissy, thank you so much for your support. Shirley fans, if you want to help us out, we put hours of time into each one of these episodes both before during and after so if you can see fit to give us monthly support we would truly appreciate it just go over to our patreon page patreon.com slash shirley podcast and you can pick any tier that you like to give us a monthly donation thank you so much sissy we sure appreciate it you are the best okay guys we are ready to jump back into these three sci-fi movies 40 Years ago. They're all turning 40. And I, I was texting with our buddy, Jeff Mazuka. Yes. And he was asking me, he's like, well, what's what's the connection between these three? And I said, well, it's, they all came out in June of 82. And they're all like all-time classics, which yeah. for us is enough. Right. But I've got some really cool connections between these movies I want to talk about before we dive in. Okay. First movie that came out was E.T. the Extraterrestrial by Mr. Steven Spielberg. Yes. Then we had, on the same day, we had The Thing by Mr. John Carpenter and Blade Runner by Mr. Ridley Scott. I mean, talk about big hitting directors of the 80s. All of these guys were In huge. their prime. In their prime. But listen to these connections. I'm, I'm ready to blow your socks off. You ready for this? Blow my mind, buddy. All right. So Harrison Ford was the lead actor in Blade Runner. Right. He was also, at the time, married to Melissa Matheson, who was the... Writer for E.T. She wrote freaking E.T. Yep. All right. The last line of dialogue, or the last sentence of dialogue from The Thing from Another World, which The Thing is a remake of, is Watch the Skies. Yes. Watch the Skies was the working title for E.T. Yes. Okay, I've got a few more connections for you. So The Thing was made in response to Ridley Scott's Alien movie. Yes. Alien actually revitalized The Thing, gave it life, okay? Yeah. One of the possible choices for McCready in The Thing, Peter Coyote, who plays Keys in E.T. Yeah. And then, I got one last thing that's going to blow your mind. Okay. There is a miniature of Dark Star, the ship... Okay. John Carpenter's Dark Star. Yeah. That can be seen in the background at the police station in Blade Runner. Wow. How about that? That's awesome. All right. Okay, there's more. I'm going to I'm going to bounce back and forth on them, but you've got a cameo appearance in ET on a deleted scene by one of those people we've talked about. You have guys that owned rights to a, one of the scripts that had written scripts for the other directors. These movies are interlaced like you wouldn't believe, and we're going to hit all kinds of connections as we go through. So, just to refresh your memory, movies from June of 82. June of 82 was really strong, okay? Uh-huh. The weekend of June 4th, you had Poltergeist along with Star Trek 2: The Wrath of con then june the 11th you have of course et and greece too for you cool riders out there (laughs) then june 18th you have the clint eastwood firefox movie i don't know if you remember that one but i was freaking pumped up to see that one i remember of it i don't it was boring until the last 10 minutes and then it turned into top gun in the last 10 minutes right and then june 25th you had blade runner megaforce and the thing wow june of 82 was great month 
to be a movie-watching kid. Almost as good as June of 81. Almost, not quite. Yeah. Okay, Jason, we're going to go back to 1930 when a young 18-year-old kid going to his first year at MIT starts writing science fiction. Wow, okay. This guy's name is John W. Campbell. From 1930 to 1931, when he's 18 years old, he wrote six short stories, six letters, and one novel for the science fiction magazine Amazing Stories. He would later become an editor of another science fiction magazine called Astounding, but this guy, to say that he was an important force in the world of science fiction is too much of an understatement. Let me just say this. The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction said, quote, more than any other individual, he helped to shape modern science fiction. Isaac Asimov said he is the most powerful powerful force in science fiction ever. What? This guy is huge. And he decided to start writing some stories in a different tone. He assumed a pen name of Don A. Stewart. That was the name he used when he wrote a little story called Who Goes There in 1938. Right. It is the story that the thing is based on. Yes. Okay, so John W. Campbell became the editor of Astounding in 1937 and stayed the editor through his death. He helped shape the careers of the big three, and as far as science fiction goes, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, remember that name, Robert Heinlein, and Arthur C. Clarke, right? So Isaac Asimov, I mean, everybody knows who that is, right? Sure. Okay, Robert Heinlein, Starship Troopers, and a ton of other things. He also shaped the career of Theodore Sturgeon, who did Starship Troopers, and then, of course, Arthur C. Clarke is 2000. 2001 and a million others, right? Sure. As the editor of this magazine, he was a guy who kind of imposed certain standards upon all of his writers, these guys included, and that's how he kind of shaped the world of science fiction. And he started to go in a direction that was kind of disturbing to these other guys where he started investigating parapsychology and parascience and pseudoscience and some of these other things. And that turned off Isaac Asimov and these other guys, which is interesting because when we we talked about parapsychology and Dan Aykroyd back when we did our Ghostbusters episode. He was like, you know, if people would give this sincere scientific study, maybe we could learn something about these otherworldly type of things. And you also mentioned that while they were filming the movie, there was a certain <laughs> resident of New York City who ran into Dan Aykroyd at the time that they were filming the movie. Can you remember that? Yeah, so so Dan Aykroyd's like, holy crap, it's Isaac Asimov. <laughs> and Isaac Asimov's like, are you the reason why all this traffic is here and Dan Aykroyd's like I guess so sir and he's like I think it's disgusting right so Isaac, As <laughs> Isaac Asimov doesn't like the parapsychology guys right at all so what this ultimately ends up happening is John W. Campbell does befriend a guy who's into these kind of weird things, and his name is L. Ron Hubbard. And so John W. Campbell is a key in the development of what would become Dianetics, the foundational piece of work for Scientology. Scientology. Wow, you I, are blowing my freaking mind. Hi, Tom Cruise. Great job on Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Back to Who Goes There. So this was produced in 1938. It is very similar in story to what we get in the movie The Thing from 1982. But there was another movie called The Thing from Another World that came out in 1951. That was directed by Howard Hawks. Okay, in that one you had a guy in a 
costume, right? It hey, wasn't I watched this that changeling. movie. Yeah, I watched it. it. Well, yeah, it, tell me, tell me. Well, I watched it on YouTube. Okay, it's free on YouTube. Okay, it's you know it's a, it's a 1950s science fiction movie. It's a whole lot of you know a couple of people grandstanding about you know creation moving forward and evolving, and the scientist <laughs> you know goes a little crazy. But essentially, there's a they find a flying saucer and they accidentally blow it up, uh, but they rescue one of the the alien beings from the ice and the ice melts and then that guy wakes up and goes on a rampage and kills everybody and they manage to to take care of it because he's he's a plant like it's a walking plant vegetable matter there you go yeah and then the guy at the end is like you know watch the skies what was what was the last line watch the skies well that that's important can you tell me more about why that would be important because that's the working title of et what Yes. Tell me more. Yeah. So when Steven Spielberg was developing E.T., what he was doing was he was actually writing a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh-huh. And the studio came to him and said, hey, listen, we like Close Encounters. We want to do a sequel. And Steven Spielberg's like, well, they asked me to do a sequel for Jaws. I didn't do it. They did it without me. And it sucked. <laughs> right. And so I want to be involved. If they're going to do this, I want to be involved. Yeah. And so when he wrote the screenplay for Watch the Skies, it became, it sort of evolved into E.T. So you, I think we talked about this before. There's a guy named John Sayles involved here, right? Yes. And they didn't keep the name Watch the Skies. It ended up being something else. Do you remember this? So Watch the Skies was actually copyrighted. So he couldn't use Watch the Skies. Right. So he changed it to Night Skies. Yeah. Well, Night Skies is great. Yes, Night Skies, right. So he went to Lawrence Kasdan and said, hey, I've got this idea for this script. I want you to write it for me. Well, Lawrence Kasdan said, well, I'm doing this little project called The Empire Strikes Back. So I'm a little bit busy right now. <laughs> right. So he went to John Sayles, who had written for Joe Dante the spoof on Jaws called Piranha. Right. Which we talked about in our Jaws episode. In our, and in our Gremlins episode. Yes, sir. Yes. So he changed it to the night skies. It's a story about a group of aliens who terrorize a family. And the aliens, there's like a group of them. Like one was named Scar. One was named Squirt. Uh One was named Buddy. Uh Does this sound familiar to you? This sounds like Gremlins. So the night skies became basically E.T., Gremlins, and... Poltergeist. Poltergeist, that's right. Which also came out this year. It came out just a few weeks prior to E.T. Yeah. Directed by Toby Hooper, but really Steven Spielberg supposedly was actually the guy who directed it. But he was going back and forth between Poltergeist and E.T. Poltergeist is the story of a suburban nightmare. Yeah. And E.T. is the story of a suburban dream. Yep. When we get to casting in a second, I've got a nice little connection on those two movies as well. Okay, cool. So jumping back to who goes there, I'm going to tell you something that came about just in the last few years. There was an expanded manuscript found in 2018 at Harvard. John W. Campbell had donated a bunch of his manuscripts to Harvard, and somebody was just searching through these old manuscripts and found like a much larger version of Who Goes There. They started a Kickstarter campaign to try to get it published. Their goal was $1,000. They raised (laughs) $155,000. And so the book was released. It was called Frozen Hell, the book that inspired the thing, published 2019. That's fantastic. You know, that sounds very similar to The Birth of Blade Runner. We'll get to that here in just a minute. I have so much stuff. Let's go. So much stuff, all right? Let's go. Okay. So after the movie, The Thing from Another World, there were a couple of guys, a couple of screenwriters who had the rights to the story, the original Who Goes There story, right? Okay. And those guys' names were... Hal Barwood, and Matthew Robbins. 
Let me give you a couple of movies that they wrote. Okay. Dragon Slayer. Whoa! And The Sugarland Express. Are you serious? Which, of course, is Steven Spielberg's first, first movie. movie. Yes. Starring Goldie Hawn. There you go. Another connection. Yes. All right. So those guys had the rights. They passed. The universe, they were like, we're not going to make this movie. We're not interested in it. So Universal bought it. And David Foster, Lawrence Terman were trying to get a more faithful adaptation of the novel. Because in the novel, you've got the alien's body mass that will change. It involves taking over people and dogs. The dog is killed. It's telepathic. It's all very similar to what we get in 1982 as opposed to what we got in 1951. And they wanted it more like that. They approached John Carpenter in 1976, but Universal chose not to go with him because he wasn't under contract. He was an independent guy. And the guy that they hit up was Toby Hooper because he was under contract. And Toby Hooper is... The director of Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There you go. So they attempted to get others, including John Landis, but failed. But it got put on hold, right? Right. Until a couple of things happened. Okay. But before I get to those things, I'm going to talk about John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Okay. okay. So I'm going to start with Kurt Russell. We're going to draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're going to find out who's the thing. So Kurt Russell, at 15, when he does his first Disney movie called Follow Me Boys, he's already a seasoned actor. He's been acting for four years at that point. One of the movies that he was in when he was 12 years old was... It happened at the World's Fair. Do you know who's in that? No. Elvis. Oh, yeah. And so at some point, Kurt Russell shows up and kicks Elvis in the shin. (laughs) Okay. So then he goes to Disney. Between 66 and 75, he had a big career with Disney. Computer wore tennis shoes, Strongest Man, all these amazing Disney movies. And after nine years and nine movies... He was ready to be done, yeah, right? Ready right. to be done with Disney. So in 1974, the last movie that he does with Disney is The Strongest Man in the World. In the same year, he plays Charles Whitman, the sniper killer, yeah. in the movie The Deadly Tower. Wow. I mean, talk about let's burn this image to the ground. Seriously. Right? So that's his objective. I'm, you know, I've been the Disney kid for nine years now. I want to do something completely different. Well, enter John Carpenter. Now, John Carpenter, we talked about in our Aliens episode because John Carpenter went to school with this guy named Dan O'Bannon, and they worked together on John Carpenter's student movie called Dark Star. Which is also, coincidentally, the name of the plane that Tom Cruise flies in Top Gun Maverick. Yes, and I think that I think the movie had to have inspired the plane, right? Those guys (laughs) at Lockheed Martin have to be John Carpenter fans. I believe it. So you can go back and listen to that episode, but you'll have to remember that Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter had a falling out. Dan O'Bannon ended up doing a big project with a guy that didn't come through called Dune. Remember this? Yes. Flew out to Europe. Project fell through. He lost all his money. He came back and was sleeping on the couch. And that's when he wrote the movie Alien, right? Yep. The reason that he got the job was because Alejandro Jordowski was making Dune. So Alejandro Jordowski had gone to talk to this guy named Douglas Trumbull, who was the special effects guy to talk to. And Douglas Trumbull said, hey, this is the way that we are going to do things. And 
Ordowski was like, I don't want to do it that way. And Douglas Trimble was like, well, tough. That's the way it's going to be. Or I'm not going to do it. He's like, well, then I don't want you. Right. And then they went and saw this movie at the theater called Dark Star. And he said, who's the special effects guy for this movie? It was Dan O'Bannon, who, of course, then became the guy who wrote Alien, which was directed by Ridley Scott, worked closely with him. Ridley Scott, of course, is the guy who directed Blade Runner, who had the most amazing set design that was made by Douglas Trumbull. Wow. How about that? So Douglas Trumbull just passed away in February. God rest his soul. We had a couple of guys who are involved in these things who have just recently passed away. But Douglas Trumbull is obviously an icon as far as visual effects goes. But there you go. Another connection. Hey, by the way, just a little connection here. Okay, yeah. Ridley Scott. Also directed Gladiator, which we paired up against Braveheart in one of our earliest episodes. Yes. Which you were way wrong in. Whatever. (laughs) That was one of the few episodes we really disagreed in. Yes. So after John Carpenter has done Dark Star, he starts doing some of these other kind of low-budget horror movies. One is called Assault on Precinct 13, which is a retelling of the Rio Bravo movie. Yep. And he realizes that there's a lot of work and a lot of money to be made in TV movies at the time. Does another couple of horror movies. And then he does this biopic on Elvis. Yes. And guess who plays Elvis? Kurt Russell. You want to be able to walk around and see things. All the mobs of people, you know, just just be free. Just be playing little old me instead of the image. Same guy who at 12 years old kicked Elvis in the shin is now playing (laughs) Elvis in the biopic in 1979, directed by John Carpenter. And that is where these two get together and fall in love. By the way, one of the little horror movies that you kind of skimmed over there, Halloween. One of the most profitable movies of all time. Yes, so... 1979 is when this biopic came out. 1979 is, of course, when Alien came out. Yes. And also, of course, John Carpenter had Halloween. Yes. So those are the two colossal events that wake up Universal to say, hey, maybe we should go ahead and remake the thing. I don't know who to trust. I know what you mean, Blair. Trust's a tough thing to come by these days. Tell you what, why don't you just trust in the Lord? Bang on. Good job. Nailed it. So, they go back to John Carpenter, and he didn't think that he could do it better than Howard Hawks had done it. It was a movie that he had loved since the time he was a kid, but he hadn't really ever read the book. And so he reads the novella, and he's like, you know what? This isn't the same as the movie. This is more like an Agatha Christie, like, and then there were none. It really is like, and then there were none. Yes. Yes. And so he's like, huh, I think I can do something different with this. I mean, just let me be clear on this. Howard Hawks was like a huge influence on John Carpenter. He was scared to do this movie. If you watch Halloween, you can see that it is an homage to Howard Hawks and the way that he did stuff. And so they said, John Carpenter, we really want you to do this. Once he read it, he was like, I think I can do this in a different way. But they needed a script. They approached several different writers, one of which was Richard Matheson, who was, of course, the father of of Chris Matheson. Who wrote freaking Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure. Yes, and Richard Matheson is the guy that said, hey, you should do a time travel movie based on your short story. Richard Matheson so, wrote I Am Legend. I mean, it's... He's, it's a big deal. Yeah. He's a big deal, right? He didn't do it. 
But there was a son of a famous actor that was into script writing, and they approached him. And his name was Bill Lancaster, son of the famous Burt Lancaster. Incredible. When they approached him, he said, I want to keep this close to the novella. And they said, that's what we want. Now, in the script, you don't really see the monster. They played the Jaws card where they kept the monster Brilliant. hidden. But there's a guy named Rob Bottin who they had approached about doing the special effects in this movie who said, I really think we should see the monster more often. And that's why you got it in there as often as you did. By the way, every time you see the monster, you're going to crap your pants because it's so freaking <laughs> scary. This is one of the best special effects movies of all time. And we, one of the movies that John Carpenter had done in this, this time period between, you know, hey, we want you to do the movie and the movie coming out was a movie called The Fog. Yeah. And so this young, I think 20 or 21-year-old kid is like, oh, John Carpenter, I want to go meet him. He's over on the lot. He's doing some work with a special effects guy named Rick Baker, who you might have heard of. Oh, uh, Rick Baker. Yeah. yeah. And so he's like, oh, I want to go meet him. And he's like, gets in. He's like, okay, so the movie you're doing is what? The Fog? Oh, can I be in it? And he says that John Carpenter's like, stand up. And he's like, he thinks he's going to say, stand up and get out. And he's like, turn around. <laughs> okay, I got a part for you. You need to be here tomorrow morning. You need to wear this. You need to learn these lines. I mean, so so Rob Bottin, first working with John Carpenter as an actor in The Fog. Wow. Now, of course, we know from our American Werewolf in London versus The Howling that Rob Bottin worked again with Rick Baker initially on The Howling, but then John Landis called Rick Baker and was like, what are you doing? I've got a werewolf movie. We've been you waiting, have to come. yeah. I mean, John Landis is the reason that Rick Baker is a household name. Sure. Right? So Rick Baker leaves to go do American Werewolf in London. He leaves Rob Bottin in charge of... The special effects for The Howling, which, of course, are monumental at the time. And so then when we get to The Thing, Rob Bottin is the man for the plan. The effects in The Thing are so graphic mm. and shocking yeah. that the press accused John Carpenter of being a pornographer of violence. <laughs> Right? Yeah. We even did a little a little presentation, a live show. Oh, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. Last fall. Yeah. And uh, we presented some of the scariest movies in cinema. Yeah. And one of those moments was when the, when when the McCready... opens up and the arms come off. Oh, my gosh. So incredible. We'll talk about special effects in, in a little more detail a little bit right. later on. Okay. So, we've got our director... We've got our script by Mr. Bill Lancaster. We've got our special effects guy, and it's time to start going. Yes. Okay. Okay, so that's the beginning of the thing. Yep. Now we got to talk about the beginning of Blade Runner. Wake up. Time to die. Okay. All right, so once again, we're going back in time. We are going to talk about sci-fi writers. This guy's a little bit younger. His name is Philip Kindred Dick. Mr. Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick, an unfortunate name. Born a twin. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. had a twin sister. She died in infancy. That's why you will see a lot of twinless twins in his works. Interesting. Okay. He said it had a profound effect on him, even though he's only six weeks old. It's a big condition. Like There are organizations that are the twinless twins organization. So okay. it, it was profound on his life, but I don't need to get into all that. What you need to know is that he also was a 
young science fiction writer. He wrote other more mainstream stuff, but it was unsuccessful, and he really was never truly appreciated during his lifetime. Okay. So Philip K. Dick started writing in 1952 and wrote for nearly 10 years without any real success. His stuff would get submitted to the science fiction magazines. My guess is probably John W. Campbell read some of his stuff and rejected it. Yeah. But... In 1962, he came out with a novel called The Man in the High Castle. Yes. Have you watched this on Showtime or whatever? I have not seen the series. Okay. I read this book a long time ago, and it's basically what would have happened if Germany had won World War II. Right. And that premise alone is just fascinating. Uh I haven't read the book, but as I understand it, there's actually a book within the book that is, what would have happened if the Allies had won World War II? Yeah. Which is kind of, I mean, that's crazy. That is that is some deep, it, weird stuff. I can say that going down the Philip Dick Hole, if you will, <laughs> is a <laughs> world of crazy beyond your normal crazy, if it's, you will. He, it's upper level, super highly intelligent stuff. It can get over your head in a hurry. He, just as a quick glimpse of his life, he he didn't have a lot of financial success despite the really famous works that he's done. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was the inspiration for, his stories were the inspiration for Man in the High's Castle, Minority Report, Blade Runner, Total Total Recall. Recall. I mean, this, it's huge, right? It's huge. But he was a weird, kind of messed up dude. I sent you a video today of him talking about a real life experience that he had that sounded like the inspiration for the matrix like where he was talking about how he met this woman uh, that had delivered something to him after he'd had a tooth extracted and he was still under the effects of the sodium pentothal and he thought she was like some sort of angel she had an ichthys necklace that he was like what is that fish what is that and this guy who was never a christian in his life suddenly after meeting this woman believed he was living two parallel lives one is philip k dick and the other is a man named thomas who was alive during the events of Acts in the Bible, which he said he had never read. And one of his books is based upon that experience. He's a strange dude. He's definitely a strange dude. And not being a financial success, so he was in trouble with the IRS, right? Yeah. In one of the dedications in his books, he dedicated to a guy who helped him out when he needed help paying off the IRS. That guy who he had never met, just a guy who liked his work and wanted to help him. Yeah. Robert Heinlein. Really? Yes. The science fiction writer. Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah. So there you go. And and again, another looping connection. Ultimately, Philip K. Dick would win the John W. Campbell Science Fiction Award. It's just, it's, it's crazy <laughs> the overlap that we have in all of these That's things. That's insane. And so you mentioned to me that while he was studying on The Man in the High Castle, he came across some stuff which led to the development of another story. Right. So he would he would go to the library at Cal Berkeley and uh-huh. just read like the dark hallway journals, like the back corner stuff, right? Right. The stuff that nobody reads, he's back there reading. Uh-huh. And he came across a bunch of journals from World War II, and it was Nazi journals, right? And so he's thinking about The Man in the High Castle, so he's reading through these Nazi journals, and he reads this one guy's journal, and it says, we can't sleep because these stupid children who are starving keep crying. And Phil oh K. Dick is like... This person who wrote these words cannot be human. It's not possible. You cannot listen to starving children cry and be upset that you can't sleep. That's not human behavior. There's something wrong with this person. Uh Therefore, he has to be 
an android. He right? legitimately believed this. Yes. He legitimately believed this. This person is not human. Right. And so that led him to the story we know as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Which, of course, was the inspiration for our movie. Blade Runner. Yep. So tell you about another guy real quick. His name is Hampton Fancher. Mm-hmm. Hampton Fancher, at age 15, ran away to Spain to become a flamenco dancer and renamed himself Mario Montejo. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> uh, why would you? Why would you know that, right? So there's good job. There is a deep dive on Hampton Fancher. So Hampton Fancher is the screenwriter for Blade Runner, right? So he he had a job as an actor in westerns and Troy Donahue movies. The guy who's name checked in Greece and in The Godfather. Yep. And by the way, he also had a couple of relationships with some hotties. Uh, one of which was Barbara Hershey. The other was Terry Garr. What knockers! Oh, thank you, Doctor. Let's um, go, dude. Yeah, he's he's kind of rocking and rolling. It, but <laughs> ar- around 1977, he's like, you know what? I think I'd like to do some screenwriting. And that's what he decides he's going to do as a full-time job. So he starts trying to option Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in 1975. Okay. And Philip K. Dick is like, no, I don't know who you are. I'm not going to let you make a movie out of my... No. Right. And so Fancher goes to his buddy named Brian Kelly. Now, Brian Kelly, you will know as the dad from Flipper. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian Kelly had been involved in a motorcycle accident before he was about to make a movie. It left his right arm and leg paralyzed. He sued. He didn't get a, didn't get to be in the movie because he's lost right. movement on, the, on that side of his body. Right. So he sued. He got a settlement. And with that, he started building homes and producing movies. Really? And so Fancher is like, hey, Brian, I really want to make this movie. Can you help me out? When Brian Kelly goes, Philip Dick agrees, and Fancher gets brought on to write the screenplay. Now, ultimately, Kelly would later enlist the support of Michael Dealey, who wrote The Deer Hunter. Yes. And they made Fancher an executive producer, and he was obviously still largely involved, He, but he is kind of the, the catalyst that brought this book into movie world, right? But he, as executive producer, ended up having a ton of disagreements with Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott even brought on his own guy named David Peoples, who you will know from writing The Unforgiven and 12 Monkeys, and reworked the script and reworked the script. Now, we're going to talk about the big question of Blade runner right the big the big question where ridley scott is on one side and fancher is on the other side on this one right so you got the guy who wrote the original script and the guy who directed the movie and they say opposing things yeah it's interesting so and harrison ford with fancher as well yeah by the way fancher and peoples when ridley scott brought in peoples to help out with the screenplay fancher's like f you f you f you and f you i don't need this effing project and he really got his feelings hurt and so when will peoples met him he was like hey we kind of need to talk through you know some stuff Uh uh-huh and he's like, I really did not expect to like this guy at all. Yeah. And they became like best friends. Oh, that's awesome. You know? That is awesome. Yeah. Apparently Fancher, when he would try to rewrite, he was so slow that the production crew would call him Happen Faster. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you know where the name Blade Runner comes from? Tell me. Okay. The title comes from a book by a guy named Alan Norse. And he wrote a book called The Blade Runner. And this is about someone who sells illegal surgical instruments on the black market. Yeah. 
Ridley Scott's like, that's a really cool name. Go ahead. A whole lot better than do androids dream of electric sheep. Right. And so he optioned the title from that guy, and it became Blade Runner. Now listen to this. So here's the names considered for Blade Runner, okay? Yeah. So do androids dream of electric sheep? Not a great movie title. So he thought about Android, Machinismo. That sucks. Dangerous Days. Eh, okay. Okay. How about this one? Ridley Scott said, hey, how about we call it Gotham City? <laughs> Wow. Bob Kane was like, nope, yeah, not right. happening, yeah. right? <laughs> so that's when he bought the title from the book and called it Blade Runner. So the name Blade Runner literally has nothing to do with the original story. It is a completely unrelated story, yes. right? Yeah. And they didn't want the title Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep because that's way too freaking long. But not only did they not want it, the word Android became a you're not allowed to say this word on the set of the movie. Like Ridley Scott said, we had a few impermissible words, and one of them is Android. If you said that word, you get a baseball bat to the head. Not literally, of course. That's interesting. Well, I do know that the word that they added in its place was replicant. Yeah. I mean, Star Wars was huge, and R2-D2 and C-3PO are droids. Yep. Androids? Yeah. You know? He considered the misuse of the term android and what had gone on with it in the past. And he was like, I don't want that for this group of people that we have, these pseudo humans that we have. We need a different name for them. So replicants and if you're less formal, skin jobs. (laughs) That's good. So we've got Ridley Scott, who has just done Alien which is what allowed the thing to be greenlit. Yes. We've got a script that has been worked and reworked based on a book by a guy who's Looney Tunes as can be. Yes. And so how do we get to E.T. from here? How do we get to E.T. from here? Be good. Be good. I taught him that too. Okay, so here's something that's interesting to me, right? Yes. So when they cast Blade Runner, yes. Indiana Jones was not a name that anybody knew. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Because when I watched this movie the first time, I was like, I can see how people who had just seen Raiders of the Lost Ark would have been extremely disappointed with Blade Runner. Because it's an entire, like, he's not, he's not indie at all. Right. And he's not Han Solo. Right. But at the time they cast him, nobody knew who Indy was. Harrison Ford was just doing well, right? Yes. And so just before he had filmed this movie, he filmed that movie. He filmed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And while they were filming Raiders of the Lost Ark, he had his wife with him. She was friends with Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg is out in the desert looking at old seashells because he said it used to all be ocean, right? Right. And he's talking to this wife of Harrison Ford named Melissa Matheson. Yes. And he says, I've had this idea since I was a little kid and I would love for you to help me out. The fact alone that E.T. is birthed in Tunisia while they're shooting, my favorite movie of all time. Has anyone had two bigger movies back-to-back like that? Well, keep in mind, Alien became a movie because of Star Wars. (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark became a movie because Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were building a sandcastle on the beach in Hawaii just after Star Wars had been released And Steven Spielberg said, I'd really like to direct a James Bond movie. And George Lucas said, don't do that. I've got a better idea. Direct my movie instead. And that became Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's incredible. 
Right. It's incredible. By the way, mm-hmm. Harrison Ford, when he auditioned for the part of Rick Deckard in Blade Runner, yeah. he showed up with a fedora and a leather jacket straight from the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And really, Scott's like, huh, you're doing this little project with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. I guess maybe we should take you seriously. Yeah. So Steven Spielberg wanted to do a story about a boy and an alien. He also wanted to do a story about divorce. He had experienced divorce when he was 15. His father left the family, and it was him and his two younger sisters, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it had a profound impact on his family. And he felt alone and sad. And so it just so happened that these two projects coincided. And it's fascinating, too, because he's like, I don't really care about this being commercial. This is a project I want to do. I don't know if people will like it. It's kind of like a Disney movie. It was his small movie. Like he considered it his small movie. And if you think about it, it really is. I mean, it's it all takes place in the suburbs and the woods. You're not on the deck of a starship. That's right. You are not in deepest, darkest Africa or in the deserts of the Middle East. I mean, it's at a little kid's house, right? Yes. That's it. Yes. So we mentioned before in our Godfather episode that George Lucas was partners with a guy in their first production studio, and that guy was Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Well, Francis Ford Coppola, after he made The Godfather, he made a little movie called The Black Stallion. Yeah. You know who helped him write that script? Melissa Matheson. Melissa Matheson. You've got a boy who finds an animal, befriends it, falls in love with it, And ultimately, the story revolves around that relationship, right? That's fascinating. And so when Steven Spielberg is in the desert looking for seashells, talking to Melissa Matheson, he's like, I really loved what you did with Francis on The Black Stallion. I've got this idea for a story where a boy finds an alien. I would love for you to write it. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. There's nothing like that, penis breath. Elliot! And she says no. Really? Yeah, she said no. She's like, no, I don't really, I'm not interested in doing that. And so Spielberg, after Raiders tries to write it, he and Kathleen Kennedy work together to try to write it. They're not getting anywhere with it. And so finally they just pressure and pressure on Melissa Matheson. And finally she's she relents. She's like, okay, I will write it for you. And so she spends eight weeks, eight weeks writing the first draft. She sends him the first draft. After he reads it, he runs into Kathleen Kennedy and said, this is it. This is the script. We don't need to do any rewrites. This is the script we will shoot. It is shoot script ready. That never happens. That never happens. I mean, we're talking about two months, less than two months. She writes what essentially is the entire movie of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. That's that's unbelievable. I love it. That's a great story. By the way, we did mention this. Melissa Matheson married to Harrison Ford. Yeah. She's not the Hollywood glamorous woman that you might think. Not at all. And I remember when I looked at her the first time and I was like, Wow. I mean, Harrison Ford is regarded as, you know, Hollywood handsome, you know, big time leading man. And she's not, like you said, not classically beautiful Hollywood style. But I got to watch a lot of the behind the scenes stuff because she was always on set. The rewrites that they did, they would do as they were shooting the movie. And she was there and talking to the kids the whole time. I mean, she 
grew up raising Harrison's kids and had kids of her own and babysat kids. And so the, all of those conversations that she would overhear became a part of the script. But as I watched her talk to these kids, she has an infectious smile and personality. I can see how anybody could fall in love with her. That's great. I saw those two. And when after you had said that to me, we were talking on the phone and I watched the behind the scenes with E.T. I'm like, totally. She's, right. She's wonderful. Yeah. She just, she beams joy. Yeah. Which is, oddly enough, Harrison Ford does not beam joy. <laughs> no, but that's typically the way those marriages go, right? You know, you got, you got the joyful one and you got the old grump. So Steven Spielberg takes that screenplay and uh-huh. goes to Columbia and says, Hey, I've got a screenplay I want to do. It's about a boy and an alien. You're going to love it. It's great. They look at it and they're like, I think we're going to pass on this one. There's another movie we're going to do instead called Starman by John Carpenter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That came out in 84. But they said, listen, we're not going to stop you from making this. We'll give it back to you. So he goes to Sid Sheinberg at Universal. His mentor. His mentor, the guy who he did Jaws with. Guy who hired him to be their full-time director at the youngest age of any director. Yes. Yeah. Sid Sheinberg, who also goes on to do Jaws 4, which we'll talk about here in just a few weeks. His wife is the wife of... The main... She's the star of the movie. Yes. Okay. Can't wait to get into that one. I can't believe of all of the Sid Sheinberg movies you're laying Jaws 4 on top of him, but <laughs> hey, okay, go ahead. <laughs> take the good with the bad. All right. Sid is like, this is great. We want to do this? Yeah. I believe in you. Let's do this. So he has to pay Columbia, get this, $1 million and 5% at the box office. Ooh. Okay? Okay. Columbia's like, we'll give it to you for a million bucks and 5% of whatever you make on it. Yeah. This little crappy little Disney alien thing that you're working on. Right. Okay? Right. Now, John Vetch, the president of Columbia, said they made more on that 5% of E.T. Mm-hmm. than they made on any of their movies that entire year. Wow. 5% of E.T. worth more. Wow. Now then, we'll talk about reception here in a minute. But basically what we know is that The Thing and Blade Runner and a lot of other movies, let's be honest. Yeah. Got swallowed up in the tsunami that was E.T. that summer. Let's be clear about this. Blade Runner and The Thing were considered to be failures yeah drop dead failures yes and both due in large part to the success of et now you've got you've got movies that spent tons of money on special effects and had incredible stories and what ultimately become highly regarded movies that got kicked to the curb (laughs) by a little movie about a boy who finds an alien Okay, we are almost at the end of our time for this episode, but before we go, we need to have our Shirley Showcase. This week, we've got our good friend, Travis Lasley, and he wants to weigh in on one of our former matchups. Yeah, he's going to tell us his opinion on Licensed to Ill versus Raisin Hell. That's an episode we did last November with our good friend, Mr. Def Dave. Let's hear what Travis has to say. Hello, Shirley, you can't be serious fans. My name is Travis, and I have on my yellow and green Adidas, so it's time to get ill. I'm here to talk about Raising Hell versus Licensed Ill. Now, I don't rap, and I can't teach anyone anything they didn't learn from Death Dave, Jason, and Dee during their extensive four-part series, but I hope to bring a unique perspective to the conversation. I was born in rural Indiana. My backyard was a cornfield, and across the street was a Christmas tree farm. So I wasn't stepping out my front door to a cornucopia of culture. 
Let's just say I watched a lot of TV and movies. Being the youngest in my family, I was the TV remote control and my sister's video music alarm, and she would often tell me to watch MTV and come get her when Bon Jovi or whatever the hottest new video her and her friends wanted to watch came on. During this time, I started to see videos for Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. It reminded me of my favorite movies on HBO at the time, Breakin', Breakin' 2, and of course, Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. It was awesome, and their style and beats just spoke to me. I was only seven years old at the time, and even kids in my school were bringing these tapes to listen to during indoor recess while we traded Garbage Pail Kids. These two albums mean a lot to me, and bring back more memories than any other. I'm mentioning this because I'm about ready to pick apart one of these two albums, but I want everyone to know that I literally grew up with both of these albums in my life since second grade. These albums mirror each other in so many ways, but one shines just a little bit brighter than the other. And my vote goes for License to Ill. And here are three reasons why I came to this conclusion. Number one. DJ Double R. Yes, Rick Rubin himself got better. Having worked with LL Cool J, Run DMC, and Slayer already, it is clear that he evolved as a producer. The sounds on License Dill are clean and more polished than Rick's previous works. Reason number two, there is no margin for error in this competition, and the worst song on either album is Perfection. I still listen to this song every time I put on this tape. Yes, I did say tape but it does not belong on an album the caliber of Raising Hell. Reason 3, and this one hurts. I have a lot of mixed emotions about what I'm going to say next. I love a crossover, and Walk This Way is the best crossover since the Harlem Globetrotters went to Gilligan's Island. That being said, the fact that the best song on your album is essentially a cover and the original band is helping you is strike three. This song changed everything, and I love it, but License to Ill has no covers. And it's the reason it reigns supreme. I would like to take a minute and thank Jason and Dee. The last few years have been tough on a lot of people. During that time, I have been entertained not only by them, but some of their suggestions. The 30-something movie podcast, the soundtrack show, Buzz in the Tower, the vintage video podcast, and of course, the podcast full of kryptonite, which itself is the best crossover since Chubby Checker and the Fat Boys did the twist. Add all that up and it's around a thousand hours of entertainment when a lot of us really needed it. Thank you. And I can't wait to hear what comes next. Wow. That was the best Shirley showcase since Mork and Mindy went over to Happy Days. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. That was fantastic. Thank you, Travis. Travis has been a listener for a very long time. And we truly appreciate the friendship that has developed with Travis. What a great showcase. Loved it. Yeah, that was really nice. And thank you for that compliment. And thank you for endorsing our good friends, other podcasts that we've made friends with. Yep. Okay, that does it for part one of E.T. versus The Thing versus Blade Runner. Be sure to join us next week for part two, where we will get into casting. Yeah, we're going to talk about cast. We're going to talk about development. We'll talk about the directors. It's going to be great. Come back for part two next week. <laughs>